You're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turfnet zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to Rock Bottom Radio for April 2020. This episode of Rock Bottom Radio is brought to you by Turfnet and Dryject, quite possibly the smartest method ever invented to improve your putting services and what lies beneath. Before we tune in to Rock Bottom, I'd like to answer a question regarding our format. We've been doing a podcast called Rock Bottom Radio for a couple of years now, and we're not like the other podcasts. We operate more like an old-timey radio show than a serious interview segment, and there are several reasons. There are a lot of great interview-type podcasts out there. TurfNet has several. But when Peter McCormick suggested we do our version of a podcast, we really didn't want to try to compete with the TurfNet lineup, because... Well, quite frankly, we don't have the interview skills it takes, and more importantly, our job here at TurfNet has always been slanted toward entertainment. True, it's entertainment with a goofy perspective and the occasional subliminal message, but we feel the lighthearted angle is necessary. I know, because I sat in that superintendent chair and filled every other job on the golf course, and, well, it's gotten more and more serious over the years. Sometimes it helps just to have a different, more relaxed, and yes, even twisted view of this industry. You know, a few laughs. Now more than ever. When I was a kid, I heard the old folks talking about old-timey radio shows. About how they sat around the radio in the living room on Saturday night and listened to comedy like Lum and Abner, or mystery shows like The Shadow, or Batman. The list goes on. I never understood their feelings on radio since we had TV. Moving pictures coming right into the house. Then one summer, it was 1970, during the hippie era, I heard one of these old-timey radio shows. We were living in West Tennessee, and it was quite common to leave the radio on all night, turn way down, you know, on our favorite FM station, FM 100 out of Memphis. The jocks spoke in quiet tones, and they played entire albums of obscure music the kind that blended well with our cosmic black lights and posters of Hendrix and the gentle undulations of a waterbed. It was the middle of the night, and I was not really asleep, sort of drifting and enjoying listening to the jock, mostly because it felt like I wasn't completely alone, and he put on Lum and Abner. First, I thought it was a joke, but as I listened to the show and picked up on the plot, it was set in an old country store run by two old guys with questionable intellect, Well, it was better than TV, as I conjured up what the store looked like in my mind, and it was much more lush and imaginative than, say, the sets on I Love Lucy. I spent a lot of time looking for records of the old shows and entertaining my friends with obscure comedy. Well, kind of like now. Anyway. Hey, have you looked outside? No, I'm doing the radio show. Why? Must be 500 golfers out there. Biggest day we ever had, and we're closed. Ain't making a dime. Well, I'll be. Quick, get a bench and uh, and take this old cigar box and go out to number one tee and start collecting money. Oh, you must be insane. With that Corolla out there, you think I'm going to touch all that filthy money? Yes. Here, take the microwave out of the kitchen. I'll run an extension cord out there for you and charge them um, $10 to play. Have them put the money in the microwave and... Then wave it with radiation real good and Bob's your uncle. Do you have any idea what could happen if we do that? Take what is possibly a bioweapon and hit it with radiation? Ain't you never seen Godzilla? 
Well, yes, I have, but that wasn't my fault. I thought those were stamps. Ain't this crazy? You beg folks to come outside and walk in the fresh air, play some golf, and what do they do? Just sit inside looking at computer screens. Then tell them they have to stay inside, and suddenly they outside everywhere, swarming like locusts. Hey, Mama, you might want to put your Marshall drone in the air and folks is trashing up the place and dropping beer cans and cigar butts and candy wrappers and worst of all, they're playing slow. Who's playing slow? Well, the worst one is Bubba. He's got three empty holes in front of his group and his pre-shot routine is so slow it looks like one of them statues in the cemetery. Cletus, where's Buford? We could use his help right now. He's still in the hospital. Is he sick? No, he got electrocuted when his wife tried to kill him. Patsy tried to kill Booth? What for? He was observing social distancing, and she got all huffy when he wouldn't let her back in the house. She had to break in the bathroom window to get in, and then that's when the bug zapper fell in the tub. They keep a bug zapper in the bathroom? Well, her TV's broke. Man gotta have something to watch while he's taking a bubble bath. How is he still alive? I don't know. I asked Lou Dow. He was there. What were you doing at Buford's house? He was gonna sell me one of his old ping putters. I still don't understand why Booth ain't dead. Well, right after Patsy broke in the bathroom window, I heard screaming and the lights went to flickering and then everything went dark. So I went inside and there's Patsy hollering about Booth getting fried and she's trying to turn off a breaker. Then what? Well, I ran in the bathroom and there was Booth, stone dead in the water. Yeah? Then electricity come back on because Patsy must have thought she's turning the breaker off, but it's already off and it defibrillated Booth back to life. He jumped out of the tub and run past me screaming, run naked out the house. Then why is he in the hospital if he came back to life? You know that telephone pole in his front yard? Did I mention Booth ain't in a regular hospital? He's in the one that fixes your brain. Might as well give up on that. And paramedics wouldn't have done nothing except Booth kept telling them how he'd been in insect hell and all the bugs he'd zapped were waiting on him down there. Ludell, start collecting money. Willie. Get out there and pull in all the ball washers. Mama, they ain't been a ball washer on this course in years. Well, then you help Ludell. Cletus, take this bleach spray and go wipe down the flagpoles and don't spill none on the greens, you hear? Yes, ma'am. What are you going to do about Bubba? I got something for Bubba. That's right, folks. All the golf you can play, $10 cash only. Just deposit there in that microwave and off you go. And y'all keep six feet away from everybody. What are you looking at with them binoculars? When Mama sent her Marshall drone out to deal with Bubba, he made an obscene gesture at her drone and the whole foursome started hitting golf balls at it. So now what? Well, Mama got out the big drone. <laughs> Is that the one with the taser? Well, it did have. Cletus put some kind of Bombay rig on it. There it goes. Looks like it's carrying a water balloon. She gonna drop a water balloon on Bubba? It ain't water. It's turnip green squeezing. She's been saving all winter. Oh, Lordy. He gets that stuff on him, it won't never come out. Hey, Bubba, here comes that drone back. Andy, that ain't the same drone. Look how big it is. And it's, it's carrying something. It's a balloon. A water balloon. I wonder what that old crone thinks it. Hey, look out! Oh, Andy, she fumigated me with some kind of nuclear stink. Well, that's the worst thing I ever smelled. I ain't never gonna be the same, Andy. Smells like dead possum. Hey, look, buzzards are gathering over you. 
Well, that was the biggest day in Rock Bottom Country Club history. I bet we did 350 rounds. I'd wager at least half of them paid. And every single one of them walked without complaining. Except for Reverend Guerra. He demanded we give him a cart because he's injured. What kind of injured is he? Oh, he's doing his usual Sunday dinner thing, visiting with the different families in the congregation. Mostly the ones who can cook. Yeah, last Sunday was the Joads' turn to host the preacher, and they served up fresh quail. Only Miss Opal don't see as well as she used to, and she didn't get all the birdshot out to meet. So you're saying Reverend Garrett broke a tooth and he needs a cart for that? No, seems he overate, especially Miss Opal's famous baked beans. Still don't get it. Later that evening, the Rev got stomach distress, and he was crouched over rooting around in the refrigerator looking for the Pepto, and he shot out a lamp and killed a pet rooster. Now he claims he's got PTBD. What's that? Some kind of bean disorder. Makes folks social distance you. Have you noticed how many folks of the Northern Persuasion are out there playing golf today? Don't you guys have a beer cot? What did he say? I think he said his name was Snake Pliskin. So Escape from New York was true. Is it story time? What just blew up? That microwave oven. One of them rich private club types tossed a hundred dollar bill in and kaboom. They must have a chip in them or something. Ludell. Take that other microwave out there and don't take no $100 bills. Willie, tell us a story. I think all them folks out there quarantined could really use a good story right now. Okay, it's story time. Today you'll learn about the time my brother Mike, a former Army Ranger, decided to toss a crooked sales rep out the gate without unlocking the gate. We've heard that one. Tell us one we ain't heard. Okay, let's see. Uh, So you want a golf course story that's never been told? Yeah, and I know you got several of them. Surely by now the Statue of Lamentations is run out. You're getting worse than Buddy. It's Statute of Limitations. And I don't know if they ever run out when golf is concerned. Oh, I distinctly said Limitations. Now spin your web of stories and make it one of them you only tell around the campfire, not one you used in the greens of wrath. Okay, I'll tell a story that's never been revealed before and probably shouldn't be now. Once upon a time at a golf course called Dead Rock, we learned a really important lesson. Now the moral of this story is supposed to be if you're a young assistant or a superintendent just starting out, never take a job without hire and fire capability. Of course, like many of our stories, there's several morals, so I don't know which one you'll get. Dad took the job at Dead Rock, east of Atlanta. It was a privately owned country club, nine-holer, barely existing on life support. And the clubhouse was an old farmhouse, and it was just another in a long line of pro-super jobs. Only this one was truly awful. It was owned by Pugli von Bortz, and the course was full of parasites. Not so much the insect kind as the people kind. And several of those people had ties to Pugli, so they simply couldn't be fired. There was J.R., the 75-year-old preacher who mowed fairways. J.R. spent a great deal of time preparing his sermons for Sunday mornings. Now, I never saw his church, but I was told it was a mix of Methodists and Episcopalians and something else. J.R. only worked about 15 hours a week, 
on a course that needed at least 25 hours of mowing to keep up in the summer. J.R. was protected by Pugley because of fear of punishment from above. J.R. rode the Jake F-10, and he took the key home with him. Of course, he didn't realize, as I did, that any old key would work. And then one afternoon, the old fellow went into a rage when he arrived at about one o'clock to find me mowing fairways, and he threatened to invoke several Old Testament punishments upon me. Then there was Shakespeare, J.R.'s nephew. I don't remember his real name, but we called him that because, well, he affected what we all thought was a British accent of some kind. He was early 20s, you know, big guy. But, you know, it was really odd to hear a big African-American man saying things like, Hey, well, I say, old boy, be a good lad and run put on the kettle. Shakespeare only came to work when J.R. did because J.R. had the only vehicle in their family. I was puzzled by that because they only lived about a half mile down the road. Shaky said it was unseemly for a man of such cultured upbringing to be seen walking down the road like a common golf course laborer, you know, like me. And we had Muckley, the lifeguard. He was truly protected. Taught Sunday school at Pugley's Baptist Church. Muckley was the kind of guy who still wore his hair in a bouffant, swept back and hairsprayed into place. Wore a sweater tied over his shoulders. Tennis shorts instead of a swimsuit. And he never got in the water because it mussed his hair. According to Pugley, Muckley was supposed to help out on the golf course when he had time. But that was never. Even when Dad pressed him, like during airifying, Muckley always had to go check on the pool. Even in the winter, when the pool was closed, Muckley had to go check on the pool. Muckley surmised that I was skinny dipping in the pool at night during my night watering, and he locked the gate. So I went out and collected about 100 beer cans and left them in the water, and pretty soon I was back swimming again. Then Muckley ambushed me. He put so much chlorine in the water that I lost my tan, and I couldn't focus my eyes till lunchtime the next day. Then there was Hurley, another parasite who did nothing. He lived in an old house, the only house on the course, and it was supposed to be for the night waterman, which was me. I only saw Hurley two or three times, but we were sworn enemies. He was my nemesis, because he had my house. Most days, I was the entire crew, and I resented doing all the course prep and the night watering, too, which made for a constant state of exhaustion. And when you can wear out a 17-year-old, well, something's wrong. One day, Dad hired Jimmy, with an I, just like Hendrix. Jimmy was a hippie, because that's all you could get to work on a course back then if you only paid a dollar an hour. Jimmy, I guess you're not surprised, he was a guitar player and a Rolling Stones fan. He quoted Keith Richards several times a day. Moonlight was our next hire. He had hair down to his waist, mumbled like Boomhauer, and the only thing I could understand was an occasional, Oh, wow, man, that's heavy as far out. Moonlight had been involved in a number of accidents, had totaled at least seven cars. I can't remember the other guys on the crew, but they were worthless hippies as well. Now, I'm not discriminating against hippies here because I may have sported hair to my shoulders, square red sunglasses, and one of Abe Lincoln's old hats, but at least I showed up to work every day. When we first got to Dead Rock, nothing except the F-10 worked. The spray tank was half full of rust, the old Jake walking greens mower could only make about three holes a day, and most everything was done by hand. Bunkers raked by hand, top dressing done by hand, leaf raking by hand. So it was kind of important for the crew to show up. Usually it was just Jimmy and me, except for a week or so when Joe Oz showed up. If you read Greens of Wrath, Joe Oz was the fellow who pulled one of the greatest pranks in golf course history 
That's when he pulled the dead body falling out of the tree and landed on the car right where I was trying to romance a hippie chick. I'm still hard of hearing in my right ear from that one. As time went on at Dead Rock, Dad began to suffer epic displays of volcanic temper. This was probably due to a crew of hippies and protected non-workers. Strangely, whenever Dad had one of his outbursts, within minutes, the decrepit old irrigation system would blow a major leak. Old faithful geyser-type leaks shooting 30 feet in the air. Half the system was above-ground farm pipes. You know, the aluminum pipes you moved around in 20-foot lengths and coupled them together. They were fed by a pump station, which wasn't really a pump station. It was just a plywood platform perched all cattywampus above the lake, barely holding a 50-horse pump out of the water. It was connected to a fire hose that ran up the hill to the first aluminum pipe. It was not optimum, but it's what we had. At some point, the preacher at Dad's church told Dad that the irrigation brakes were tied to his loss of control of his temper, and that if he would calm down, so would the irrigation blowouts. Dad tried really hard. Bless his heart, he made a heroic attempt at controlling his temper, and it seemed to work for a little while. But then, Jimmy would break a mower. The motto around Dead Rock was, Jimmy's a good boy, but he breaks things. Or Muckley wouldn't show up for work at all, or J.R. and Shakespeare would show up, but only work at what they wanted to do, and Moonlight would be off in jail somewhere, and Sometimes I I might say something Dad considered sarcastic. Now, I know you can't believe that, but I must have been kind of a, you know, a teenager back then. Usually I got Dad stirred up when I complained about Hurley living in my house. After all, I was the night waterman. Then Dad would explode and everyone who showed up for work would run. I usually just went to get a shovel because I knew some PVC was about to blow out of the ground like a landmine. One day, while we were top-dressing out the back of our 1947 Ford pickup, Joe Oz quit. He went off to join the Navy, where I think he stayed for like 32 years. Jimmy broke something. Moonlight crashed a golf cart, which, by the way, we weren't allowed to use. And then Muckley told Poogley on us for using a golf cart, and Poogley yelled at Dad, and I happened to mention to Poogley that Hurley was living in the night waterman's house and wasn't actually night watering, and in fact I'd never actually seen him. The yelling would have gone on for hours, except that a geyser burst out of the ground right next to where we were top-dressing, and you can guess the rest. That night, while I was night-watering, Hurley showed up. He was a big old country fella, walked with a limp, wearing overalls, and he came out of the darkness while I was wrestling with a quick-coupler fairway head. Freaked me out real good. He tried to grab me, but I held him off by wildly swinging a can sprinkler on the end of a hose. Hurley, who smelled like he'd been marinated in beer and owl droppings, mumbled a couple of threats at me. I'm sure they were threats because it was in that same tone that drunk golfers always used when they spoke to me during the day. That night I gave up any thoughts of getting the night waterman house. The next morning, instead of changing cups in drone state, you know, like normal, I went out and bought a VW camper. I parked it at the barn. Now, I didn't go in the barn at night because it was full of bats, and that means it was probably haunted. So, living in the VW at the barn, well, that was cool. I went in a couple of times to the barn just to answer the phone, and it was usually some guy looking for Tanisha, so I finally just said, Tanisha's with me now. After I thought about it, I began to read the paper for any clue as to what happened to anybody named Tanisha. Living at the barn, I enjoyed making a bonfire out of all the old signs the previous administration had placed around the golf course. There were about 95 wooden signs out there, if I remember correctly, and I brought them all in and burned them slowly. Most of the signs were there to threaten golfers about things like replacing divots and raking bunkers. (laughs) How naive. Anyway, 
Hurley took to howling at me in the night, sounding like a drunk version of the Wolfman in one of those monster movies from the late 40s. To protect myself, I began packing a weapon. I wasn't old enough to buy a handgun, so I toted an e-tool, a sort of folding shovel from Dad's days in the Army. The e-tool turned out to be too much of a close-quarters battle weapon. I needed something with some reach, so I bought myself a slingshot and some fishing weights. It was easily concealable, and I could keep it on me when I watered at night. On a hot August night in Atlanta, Hurley came out of the darkness again. He was in a rage, and when he couldn't grab me, he tried to turn over my Cushman. I shot him with my slingshot, using the biggest lead fishing weight in my pocket. I was aiming center mass, but I must have been shaking or something because the shot went low and caught him on the ankle bone. He went to the ground, full fetal position, screaming like that woman trying to take a shower in Psycho. The screaming. Oh, I can still hear it to this day. Sometimes at night, that horrible screaming comes back to me. Or it shows up whenever I hit a duck hoop. Anyway, I didn't wait to see if I'd killed Hurley. I just took off in the VW and kept going till I was across the Mississippi. After seeing America for a while, I came back around Thanksgiving. Just in time to fight the Great Dead Rock Forest Fire. There was a forest fire burning to the south of the course, on a state park, and also to the north in a heavily wooded area. The Forest Service firefighters asked Dad to fight the small fire on the north while they went after the fire in the state park. Dad rounded us up and everyone quit, except me, Jimmy, and Moonlight. Muckley had to go check on the pool. I guess he was afraid it might burn up. We learned real quick that fighting forest fires was no joke. It was hard. Dad put a scraper on a tractor and started cutting a fire break while we took shovels and tried to stop the fire. Moonlight discovered that pounding the fire in the rather abundant pine straw was not the best tactic, as all that did was spread sparks and embers around. When his hair caught fire, Moonlight ran off, and we never saw him again. Dad realized that Moonlight had left our 1947 Ford pickup truck, where it was now surrounded by fire, and I was sent into the breach to rescue it. Flaming trees blocked the road behind, and the only way out was over a berm. Now, I knew from watching a great many Hollywood films that you didn't want the truck to get off the ground, because every time a car went off a cliff, it exploded in midair. So I had to crawl over the berm, trying to keep at least one tire on the ground at all times. That resulted in me high-siding the truck. Somehow, I got it back down by rocking my weight back and forth, and I took a much faster run at the berm. I went airborne, possibly as high as four inches into the air, and it didn't explode. We were still several years from the Dukes of Hazard, where research proved that cars could fly and not explode in midair. At that point, I approached Dad, and I, I said, Dad, is it worth it to fight this fire? I got burned hair, Jimmy's got burned hair, Moonlight run off with his hair on fire, looking like a two-legged meteor, and we're risking all of this? just to keep from burning up some dormant Bermuda and a few thousand pine trees that probably need to go anyway. Dad said, you're forgetting about the clubhouse and Hurley's house. I said, no, I'm not. We'll be rid of Muckley, Hurley, and that haunted barn that has about 6,000 bats in it. Dad thought about it for a moment, turned off his tractor, and for the first time in my life, he agreed with me. Unfortunately, the wind changed and Dead Rock was saved. That ain't the way I heard it. Well, I was there, and that's the way it happened. What did you hear? I heard Hurley wasn't shot in his ankle. He was considerably higher up than that, and they had to call in a special doctor to fix his man parts. Okay. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, the wind changed, and Dead Rock was saved. The end. 
So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story. Um, never take a course without hiring fire authority. And don't fight forest fires without training. And don't have temper fits on the golf course if your irrigation system is elderly. And practice with the slingshot or what have you before you have to use it. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 